This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. All right, so this morning I read this piece in the Wall Street Journal. It's talking about collapsing enrollments and collapsing finances in low-ranking schools. Did you guys see this piece? No, not yet. So I guess what happens is the Wall Street Journal runs a college ranking series. And uh, uh, this this article kind of looks like a research note that kind of piece on what they've been seeing while they go through the data. And what they're reporting is there's like a bifurcation in the market, like they call it a winners and losers in the market, they say. And uh, what they're saying is the bottom sort of quarter of the market is uh, experiencing an enrollment collapse. Like uh, apparently they're the bottom fifth of the market has lower enrollments today than they did uh, in the mid-1990s overall. Hmm. Whenever these arguments come up, there's a guy, a Richard Vetter, who's like a distinguished professor of economics at Ohio State, who the Wall Street Journal calls an economics teacher. Uh, <laughs> they argue that he says there's going to be a shakeout in the industry because he says a, a, a degree from a bottom-ranked school doesn't mean much of anything. You know, there's a lot of expensive schools in my area. And, you know, when we think about private schools, we tend to think about like the brand name schools. But if you draw a 50 mile radius around your institution and count the number of universities that fall into that range, you you quickly realize that there's tons of schools, all of which are really quite expensive and, and many of which are not particularly prestigious. And I don't even see how they could be uh, sustained in the first place, like there are a lot of institutions where I wonder why someone would spend $40,000 to go there when there's a cheap public option with open enrollment, but they somehow survive. And what what the argu- the argument that's being made there, and it's one that, uh, you know, has been made on and off over the last little while, is that the industry is going to collapse in some way. And uh, I, I kind of feel like, you know, may- maybe it is something that it could happen and and might not be such a bad thing if uh i mean i'm sorry i guess it's bad if people will lose their jobs or people's institutions will go under but there's so many really expensive degrees here in the united states that i see as just a ripoff and uh yeah i i I mean i don't i don't see a a correction in the industry as an entirely bad thing for society well i want to make uh two corrections one nitpicky and the other uh substantive so the nitpicky one which i'm not going to pretend i knew until i just googled it while you were talking is that he's at ohio university not ohio state yeah yeah excuse me okay ohio state got the credit and uh and and then the substantive (laughs) one is you said there's really expensive degrees uh my understanding is that the problem Mm. is not really expensive degrees the problem is really expensive dropouts uh, you know, everything I've heard about kind of the uh, returns to higher education is that getting a degree in pretty much anything, pretty much anywhere is usually a winning proposition. The problem is, is that the marginal student, and I mean marginal in the uh, economic sense, uh, it, it very often doesn't finish. And there are some schools where that's the modal response. Even at schools that uh, we teach at, it's lower than you'd think. I think the six-year completion rate at UCLA is a bit under 70%. Uh, Georgetown is a selective private, so it's probably something like 90%. And then I would bet at CUNY, it's probably about 50-50. Or at the entire CUNY system, it's probably something about 50-50. So it's higher than 90% at Georgetown. 
Yeah, it's a bit higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so here's the question because I did not read the art. I haven't read the article yeah. yet, but mm -hmm. my question is, it's part of what's going on here. And I don't know if they talk about it in the article. It's part of what's going on here is that these really expensive, you know, these low, these low ranked, um, like real institutions, like brick and mortar mm -hmm. institutions, right. That, that are costly, um, are they being given a run for their money by, you know, slightly less expensive online colleges and universities where it's just a lot easier for you to actually get your degree? I, I don't know. that. I mean, that's not addressed. And it was really a quick article. Well, you have to realize there's different market segments. So, you know, with, with the traditional student who's coming out of college, who's coming out of high school and going straight into a four year school. None of them are going to, you know, um, basically do MOOCs to get their degree. To first mm -hmm. approximation, none of them are going to do that. They're going to go to, you know, a four-year college or maybe a community college for, a, you know, two to ten years and then transfer into a four-year, that sort of thing. The, the, the MOOCs and private universities, and, and I'm for-profit, I should say, uh, in general, they really target um, – late later students who are doing it on a part-time mm -hmm. basis. And I would imagine, my understanding is that the for-profits, especially the online for-profits really, they compete not so much on quality or returns, but more on accommodating non-traditional student lifestyles. But of course the downside to that is that in part for kind of treatment effects and in part for kind of selectivity effects, the graduation rates are abysmally low from those types of schools. Like nobody, it, yeah. like you will meet plenty of people uh, who are going to the University of Phoenix, but it's very rare to meet somebody who finished there because the the completion rate is like 10%. Um, and, and they mm. account for a very high proportion of uh, student loan debt, especially student loan debt that's resolved in bankruptcy. Well, you can't do student loan in bankruptcy, but basically student loans that don't get paid off, a very high proportion of them come from mm. for-profit universities. There's even non-nominally nonprofit universities. I, I'll just say in metropolitan New York, where the tuition is thirty to forty thousand dollars, and then when you look up what faculty make at that university, they're making half of what they'd make at, mm -hmm. at CUNY, mm -hmm. with like with no pro, like a very little research activity, no prospect for associating with the grad center or anything like that. And it, it's just I, I. I I get perplexed as to why, how like a, a model could be sustained where you have what look like poorly compensated jobs uh, uh, for the people delivering the lectures, and yet students are really quite out of oh, pocket. Oh, this is this is supply and demand, right? I, I, in one sense, it's supply and demand, and in another sense, it's distortion. So, how do you get labor supply for really uh, poorly paid uh, lecturers? It's because we have a you know, what the Marxists would call a crisis of overproduction in PhDs, right? We, we just pump out way more PhDs than the kind of like core um, academic demand for. And in many subjects, there's basically no private sector demand for these PhDs. And so you have a lot of people who don't want to just say, well, you know, I didn't make it into um, the kind of academic job I'd like, but at least I'm still a professor. You know, and so they stay that even if even mm -hmm. if they're making much less than they could just by getting a you know a normal non-academic type job, and then there's the market distortion aspect. I get that, but what about the, the students? students it's like, student I loan guess distortion. They just, 
right? And that federally subsidized student loans encourage them to go towards this. And whenever the federal government, well, it's state government too, but whenever the government creates some type of subsidy towards uh, people that involves paying a vendor, you will see vendors specialize in that and uh, spring up to basically say, to recruit client populations uh, who where the payment is ultimately paid. This is why I get three phone calls a day asking me to put solar panels on a house that I sold three years ago. It's, you know, it's because there's this subsidy program for solar panels and there's all sorts of companies that basically specialize in just getting your permission to put uh, solar panels on your house and they've engineered it so that it's paid for out of the subsidy. And I, I, I there's gotta be more to well, it. I, I think that's what happens. I, mean, I think that these I, uh, schools basically specialize in collecting student loans and they're very good at recruiting students more and they're because they basically specialize in recruiting students, not in educated students. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting, I mean, every once in a while I will have, I will mention this in one of my lectures, um, you know, because I am a bit of a neo-Marxist myself and I will tell my students, you know, uh, it doesn't matter whether or not I actually do my job in front of this classroom very well. Yeah. Right. I, so? Yeah. I was like, it doesn't matter. And I was like, what matters more than anything else to whether or not I get tenure, whether or not I keep my job, whether or not I got, get promoted is how much I publish, right? And where I publish, right? I can do a pretty crappy job. You could all slam me on rate my professor and I would still keep my job. Um, the number of merit points that I would get in, um, in my annual merit review uh, for teaching like, are dwarfed, right? Um, compared to the amount of points I could get for my publishing. Well, I'm surprised to hear so, that it's like that at Georgetown because at UCLA, it's teaching, then service, and then way, way down is research. Uh, we just, you know, nobody asks about it at all. And the, and the external letter writers, well, so we managed right? to recruit the only external letter writers who don't care about that. They're like, okay, I understand that you gave me the uh, copies of the papers, but just give me the teaching uh, evals. That's what I want to see. Oh, well, stop uh, it. But, but you know, but you know yeah. what I mean, right? But what I'm saying is students have absolutely no idea, right, that this is the yeah. system, yeah. right? Um and so it's this really, it's just this, the way that universities are set up is this weird thing where, okay, so students are paying for a certain good, right? But that's not necessarily the good that universities are set up to provide, mm -hmm. right? Well, so what's you're up with mostly that? talking about elite universities, right? I mean, if you talk about these bottom barrel universities, especially these sketchy kind of scammy for-profits, um, I don't think the University mm -hmm. of Phoenix gives a shit if you publish. Uh, neither do I. Ni neither do I. But I, I'm thinking about, I am thinking about these brick and mortar mm -hmm. places. Yeah. And I don't think this is bottom of the barrel. I like if you just go on Google and count the, ins the number of institutions that are operating in metropolitan Los Angeles, like a lot of schools are going to show up that you that don't immediately show up on your radar. Like that's I went through the exercise in New York and there's tons of schools. There's tons of private mm -hmm. schools that oh, are yeah. not that are not CUNY schools. And I would say it's almost like the median school is one of these high tuition, low, uh, you know, schools with with not that much 
compared to like in the public institutions, not that much research activity and low comp for the professors. And I think there's a reputational issue. I think a lot of a lot of it has to do with general perceptions of anything public. Like Americans don't like public mm-hmm. stuff. They associate public stuff with crappy stuff. Maybe not at UCLA, but uh, that's definitely my perception in the CUNY system. Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's uh, in any case, I think. There's okay, so a what, it, what, how the shakeout happens? I don't think it's going to happen because you know a bunch of eighteen-year-olds or increasingly, you know, twenty-six or twenty-seven-year-olds who decide to go back to school are going to like make a rational calculation of their human capital, you know, long-term earnings trajectory, return on investment, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, base that and say, oh, given that the marginal school that I could get into has this probability rate, I'm going to calculate the expected value and therefore I'm better off not going. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think realistically the way it would happen is through a change in policy where you see the government basically say, we're not going to um, allow federally subsidized student loans at these schools. Uh, the Obama administration started to make moves in that direction where they started collecting the data for this. Um, and uh-huh. you know, I, I think there's a couple of interesting questions about that to ask about that. One is, is it appropriate to um, control for the student's background characteristics. Because, you know, if you do like a value added testing thing, um, you know, you could say, you know, for, you know, anybody presumably could graduate students who, you know, were number one at their high school and have a 1600 SAT and, you know, invented a superconductor for their junior uh, (laughs) science project. But, you know, and so, so there's proposals that basically say, let's take a value-added approach and see how well you do at, um, you know, graduating students with a, you know, 900 SAT. But I think the flip side to that is if a, stu- if a school's business model is to recruit students who aren't really prepared for college work, it, it, is it a bug or a feature to basically say they don't graduate students because they're recruiting students who, you know, have a very low probability ex ante of graduating college and uh, doing that. So uh, what do you guys think about that? Should, you know, should, if we do imagine creating some type of metric and then the federal government, you know, first uh, gives a warning and then completely suspends student loan programs to, uh, you know, schools that don't have a certain graduation rate, um, should it be adjusted for the qualities of the student? Or is that like part of what the schools are doing that we don't want schools recruiting students who aren't really qualified for college work? Well, I feel yeah. like schools are already doing that. Well, yes, I, I, no, but I'm Aren't saying, they? if if you were made Secretary of Education, and and you were put uh-huh. in charge of, um, you know, basically creating this reform to the um, student loan program to solve this problem of scammy schools that you know collect a bunch of student loan payments from people who then carry that debt for the rest of their lives. And because they don't graduate, they don't even get the human capital bump because the vast majority of the human capital bump from uh, uh, college education is in the sheepskin effect, right? Somebody who goes three and a half years uh-huh. and then drops out gets, it basically makes high school graduate money. Whereas somebody who does that extra semester yeah. and graduates makes substantially more money. Um, but, somebody who go, but somebody who goes three and a half years carries almost as much debt as somebody who goes four years. Anyway, so if you were put in charge of basically designing the uh, student loan program so that it would kick out University of Phoenix, but not just saying we're going to kick out University of Phoenix, but crafting a rule 
that would have the effect of craft, uh, kicking out University of Phoenix, would you adjust for the fact that students at University of Phoenix have lower SAT scores than students at Harvard? So I would, and I've evolved. You know, I for a while I had this view that uh, too many people went to university. Uh-huh. And I would have, I think originally I would have said no, because I think not everybody needs to go to university. Uh-huh. And like this whole adjustment thing is in effect, you're, you're asking you like, should we be uh, giving schools credit if they take students who shouldn't be university bound and then bringing them to completion? Yeah. And I think completion is important. Like, I think there's a big difference between a student who goes three and a half years and a student who goes four four mm-hmm. years, in part, because I think the value of a, what a university degree signals to uh, a potential employer is that this student can see a multi-year endeavor yes. through Absolutely. till the end. Like I think that's one of the biggest things that universities offer. Now I'm beginning to think, you know, I guess the longer I, I spend in this system is that, uh, yeah, I think it should. And I think that uh, this, this ability to finish long-term mm-hmm. endeavors is uh, something that people should be given the chance to develop. And if we do sort of grade on a curve Mm -hmm. for uh, the lesser schools, we'll open those opportunities because kids do turn it around. And if we are are, are too strict, then I think some students won't get that opportunity and the labor force will will lose out on on potentially good candidates. Yeah. And I and I think another part of your argument, Joe, right, is that, you know, I think, Gabriel, I think you're focusing I think you're maybe focusing too much on the students and what the students bring to the table and not enough on whether or not these institutions um, are actually doing any sort of job in trying to provide these students with the tools to get them over. Well, that that would come out in the model itself, right? So if, um, Mm -hmm. you know, if it really is the case that it's all treatment effects and no selectivity effects, then a well-designed model would capture that. Um, so this is kind of premised on the understanding, but it, you know, you kind of don't have to make an ex ante theoretical decision because you know the mm-hmm. you know if we assume that um, it's mostly in how the how well the school educates, um, and I actually think councils is probably more important than educated. I mean, we we all are from Princeton, and we all remember. Well, actually, and Leslie served in this role. Uh, we all remember that when a student there ran into trouble. Um, you know, you'd meet with their housemaster or their assistant housemaster and work something out. Whereas here at UCLA, and I'd imagine at Queens College, but not at Georgetown, you know, um, the institution is actively hostile to student degree completion. You know, so um, the simplest way to explain this is that at, you know, nice privates, they have shopping periods. And at big publics, they have wait lists. And that right there tells you why the six-year completion rate is about 30 percentage points lower at a, um, a big public of comparable selectivity to a, uh, uh, an elite private. Um, it's not. Yeah. But I think yeah. there's a value added. I think there's a I'm value saying there added. I there is a value added, the, right? The, and, and, you know, having a shopping period instead of a wait list is a value added, right? Making it, oh, making I think it it's, no, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing the difference. Is, is uh, value added. I'm arguing the opposite. Like, <laughs> okay. I mean, it depends on what students you're, yeah. no, I do, because you want to know yeah. something Every year there's students shuffling in who like they didn't have the foresight to register in the fall. And, you know, and it's one of life's lessons that like you have to plan for stuff and you got to pay attention to deadlines. Well, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, Go ahead, Japonica. 
I mean, I guess I'm just thinking, I, I, it sounds like our the conversation so far is imagining um, or is sort of tilted towards a certain kind of student. And I'm thinking about people who are maybe later in life coming back and juggling jobs mm-hmm. and children and so on and so forth. And don't we want higher education that finds ways to serve those individuals and has some flexibility for them? Well, that's, as that's well. kind of the question is like, let's say that these late career people who have kids and are doing it part time, let's assume that only 20% of them graduate uh, and the other 80% mm-hmm. take on a substantial amount of debt and then, you know, don't graduate and don't get a earnings bump. You know, maybe if from a purely paternalistic perspective, we're better off with them not. And, the, and more to the point, they're better off not doing it. Right. They're better off just saying, well, so here's my job. Yeah, I don't. That also assumes that the value of the coursework is the degree itself and not also some of the experience that happens in the classroom. Although I suppose that experience is going to vary by institution. And there's also just the general endeavor of a university. And I'm less concerned with the uh, older student who comes back because I find they're usually quite together as opposed to the 19-year-old who's clueless. And sometimes uh, and you you do a student a favor by failing them. You do a student yes. a favor by introducing adversity because that like it's it can be edifying in a sense. It can help help, help them grow up in a, in a way. I totally I totally believe that, Joe, except when it's systematic mm-hmm. and and systemic where there are certain types of students who are consistently being said being told, you know what, tough break, you know what I mean? You know, tough love, no excuses. And then you got the other students over there in the fancy school, yeah. right? You know, who are like, yeah. okay, the, the, all right, one yeah. more chance. That, that's kind of what I was thinking about, like when Joe was saying like, well, you have to learn responsibility and learn deadlines. Is That's true to a certain extent, but there's a huge difference between how responsible you have to be at Princeton which is basically what Leslie is saying of, okay, one more chance and hand holding and, Oh, you didn't, you didn't sign up for any classes this quarter. Well, so it's only second week. You can catch up, you know, uh, (laughs) whereas at UCLA, it's like, Oh, you you know, you, you try to sign up for this class that you need to graduate five minutes into your first pass instead of trying to sign up 30 seconds into your first pass too bad. You have to go to for another quarter. Right. I mean, it, it is possible to do UCLA in four years, um, but you have to be extraordinarily well organized and never make a mistake. And I'd imagine it's the same at Queens, whereas at uh, Princeton or Harvard or a place like that, you know, y- you almost have to try aggressively to fuck up uh, in order not to yes. graduate because the school makes it impossible to fail. Yes, that is true. And but I mean, that to me is an American thing uh-huh. like that. You just you get a, you get a nice free ride when you're rich here. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't work like that as much in Canada because everybody more or less goes to the same schools unless you're ultra rich, in which case you're going to Princeton or wherever. But like the the, the question is, is uh, for the student, even though it isn't fair, uh, the students like how, how is somebody who teaches the types of students we serve at CUNY, how are we going to be the best stewards of them and prepare them best to succeed once they walk out the door? And uh, it's unfortunate that I think, you know, you don't get unlimited chances, but like these kids really have to have their act together if they want to succeed because like the system here is merciless. Yeah. 
and they don't they don't have as much room in freebies. Well, I, I and I'm not saying like yeah, I, I partially agree with you about like the older students, the non traditional students being more responsible, but that's because there's a selection process. So by the time I get the, I'm not sure exactly. It, UC um, State of California is very big on the transfer system. Uh, we basically invented the idea of community colleges plus transfers in the 1960s. It was called the California Master Plan for Education. I'm not sure if uh, New York imitated it, but a lot of states and other countries have. Um, but anyway, by the time they get to me, right? So I only teach juniors and seniors. I don't really teach uh, freshmen except for like a little uh, freshman seminar that counts for one unit. Um, mm-hmm. By the time I get these students, they've already gone through the community college system. And these are the survivors, right? Because yeah. only like 20% of people or 25% of people who go through California uh, community colleges transfer to a four-year. So there's been mm-hmm. extraordinarily extraordinary winnowing process for uh, basically tenacity and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, the ones that I see, the mid-career students that I see are um, very tenacious and responsible, but that's the top quartile. The other 75% are censored from the distribution that's available to me, and I'd imagine available to you. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.